Okay, let's uh, get back to the importance of this. And as you can see, I'm giving you a lot on that so that we emphasize that this is not just a side issue that small Bible conferences devote themselves to, but something that every single person should be exposed to because every single person has a yearning for the things that God has revealed that he's going to do. The problem is most people don't have a clue and they always substitute other things to try to satisfy that yearning, but nothing ever works. And it's only what God has revealed and what God is going to do that is the solution to that yearning. So emphasize that we were talking about eschatology of all. Everyone has an eschatology. And we also wanted to be encouraged in terms of the world in which we live in and to be able to realize that things that are happening in the culture are not by accident and not even entirely by man's devices, product of man's choices, But God uses them to accomplish his purposes and goals. Just as Peter says in Acts, what is it, 2.22, that uh, Jesus died by a preordained plan. Jesus was crucified by a preordained plan, but then he also points a finger and says, but you put him on the cross. In other words, the first century Jewish community put him on the cross. And man is held responsible for those choices, but God uses them in a sovereign way to accomplish his purposes, not only with the crucifixion, but with all future events as well. So the better sense of what's going on in our culture, that we, the better sense that we have of that, the uh, more equipped we are to minister to people and to help point them in the right direction. The only true eschatology is that that is biblical. There are also world pressures that give us a sense that perhaps we may be close, but we need to be cautious even in that. The disciples in the first century, and there's indications, Paul in several passages, for example, when he's even discussing the rapture, he had a sense that the rapture could take place in his lifetime, First Thessalonians 4. If you read the passage carefully, uh, he includes himself as possibly being in that generation that is raptured. And this was true of other disciples as well in other scriptures. So that's the eminent idea. Uh, Obviously, it didn't take place in the first century, and obviously there's been 2,000 years of world history. But there are things, and in fact, in the first century, he reprimanded the believers because uh, they did not have a sense of the times in which they were living in. Now, in those contexts, he is speaking in terms of the presence of Messiah amongst them. In other words, they had all the information they needed to be able to come to the conclusion that Messiah had arrived. And they could tell the weather, he he reprimands them, but you don't have an understanding of the times. And I think that's applicable to the second coming as well. We can have a general idea. And some of these, and I want to be very careful up front, I'll distinguish later on. These are not fulfillments. I would caution you not to look at these as fulfillments. A viewpoint that I think is biblical 
is that a lot of prophetic scriptures that I'm going to allude to pertain to that period of time called the Great Tribulation. And they're not fulfilled until that period of time. In fact, the entire Olivet Discourse, the way I taught it and exegeted it and understood it from the exegesis, everything in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, is not fulfilled until this terrible time called tribulation, which is yet future. And it has things that precede it that are very, very clear in Scripture, and when it's not until those things take place that that tribulation will begin. But, obviously, it's not like a switch that you just turn on and the tribulation just, okay, from you know, it's just turned on and all these things just pop up. You're going to have things that are going to lead up to that. And I think these are indicators of things that could be leading up. And I say could be. A little caution, okay? World pressures. Indicators. And most of these are things that are for the very first time, either in thousands of years or ever, the capability of mankind of destroying himself. That exists today. And there are things, for example, the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says, had those days not been cut short, what? Man would have annihilated himself. In world history, man did not have this capability until relatively recently, until after World War II, so nuclear war. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, Matthew twenty-four twenty-two. So that looms, and there's a great fear in our culture. Now, I don't, you know, there's a lot of things that in Scripture, when the world is fearful of things, we don't necessarily need to be. We have a blessed hope, okay? But the culture is fearful, and rightfully so, because we have the capability. So the capability of nuclear war. Another interesting thing is in relatively recent time, We have the alignment of all of the enemies that are very clearly spelled out in prophetic scriptures in the Old Testament, the enemies of the nation of Israel, surrounding nations. There's an army to the east that has bragged that it can raise an army of 200 million, just as the book of Revelation spells out. And that's the Chinese, an army from the east that will come. We have the more recent rise of Iran in terms of world capabilities and a danger to not only Israel, but particularly the United States. But in Bible prophecy, it speaks of the Persian and Persian Empire to the east that is going to have a play in end-time events. And right now, Iran is a major player. Iran promises to annihilate Israel. That's their goal, and it's non-negotiable because it does not fit in with their idea of eschatology and the Mahdi. So they promise to annihilate Israel, and not only Iran, but the rise of radical Islam. This is relatively new. This has popped up, and we see it in the news virtually every day. Egypt kind of the beginning of the Arab Spring that is beginning to align these nations and these peoples. There's a power to the south in Ezekiel that's described. More than likely, and even speaks in terms of Egypt in the future, will come against Israel. 
So that power is in place. There's a powers of the east that are in place. Ezekiel 38 and 39. Well, this isn't the right slide, but this is the effects of the Arab Spring. But notice all of these nations that are part of what was called the Arab Spring surround this little tiny landmass that in some places is only about 10 miles wide called Israel. And we'll talk a little bit about the proportions in terms of numbers of people and land. And they're all surrounding and they're all anti-Semitic. We have participants. This is in that passage I mentioned, uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39. We have Magog, which is probably Central Asia. Andy Woods, by the way, has, I think, a paper or at least he's presented stuff. And most of this comes from his work where he's traced these. Rosh, which is, these are all in uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39. Probably a reference to Russia. Meshach and Tubal, Eastern Turkey, Persia, Iran, Ethiopia, the Sudan, Put, Libya. Some of these come right out of uh, Genesis chapter 10, the Table of Nations, and how they've developed and how they've occupied certain lands. Gomer, Woods ties it to Galatia. I've always thought that it was tied more to Germany, but uh, that's his view. You can pick your view there. Southeast Turkey, at least that's Andy's view there. Togarma, Phrygia, which is also Turkey, southeast Turkey. And on a map, notice they're all outside the immediate area, but they all surround Israel. Ezekiel 38 and 39. And on that, you have all the Kazakhstans, Uzbekistans, all the stands together there. They're all anti-Semitic, and they all are Islamic Okay, so surrounding enemies, they're all in place today. They're all in place. A bear to the north, there's a lot of prophecies relating to a bear from the north. Probably Russia, words that are related to Russia. Rosh, even etymologically, there's a relationship that appears to be there. Meshach, Tubal, perhaps are related. So there's a bear to the north. There is seems to be collapsing, but at least there's a united Europe today, or somewhat united. And I'm not saying that it is that united Europe that will be in the future. If this one collapses, there's going to be another one that comes about shortly after. At one time, there were ten nations, which is exactly the number that is identified in Daniel and in other places, Book of Revelation, but a uniting of Europe... So the European Union today is in place. So that does not have to be accomplished. It's there. And this is probably the key, Israel in the land. And we'll talk a lot about that when we talk about Israel. There has never been a nation that after being dispersed and scattered or destroyed, as Israel was. In fact, Israel was destroyed two times by the Babylonians and then in 70 AD by the Romans. No nation has ever survived after such a catastrophic destruction and then come back as a nation except Israel. And in our more recent time frame, May 14th, 1948, they reestablished themselves as a nation. We'll talk some more about that. But that is extremely unique. In fact, that is miraculous. 
that just didn't happen. It, it almost seems like God is putting things in place. And Ezekiel again, 37, the, the vision of the dry bones. The vision of the dry bones, there's two phases to that. There seems to be a more natural regenerating of Israel. And the way that Ezekiel interprets it is that Israel is brought back to the land. And I think they're brought back physically, they're brought back politically, they're brought back culturally. But there's a second phase. And it may be that that first phase has taken place. But it awaits a future, ultimate spiritual regeneration. And there's lots of passages that give us detail concerning that regeneration. We'll talk about that as well. But Israel in the land is huge. In fact, one of the drivers for alternative interpretation of passages before Israel became a nation again was to spiritualize passages. So it was easy when it spoke of Israel, well, uh, it probably pertains to the church. And so that was a kind of an attitude. That was kind of a viewpoint. But with Israel in the land, this kind of undermines all of that way of interpreting the scriptures. And when God refers to Israel, I think he, re- he means Israel, the nation of Israel. And we can see it very vividly today because there is an Israel with the same ethnic background people, with the same language, the Hebrew language, with the same culture, with the same hopes, with the same religious background in the land of Israel today. A modern day miracle. Common lineage, common culture, common language, common religion. Sixthly, another indicator is a tremendous movement all over the world for a new world order. That's back to that millennial idea, that eschatological idea. A better world, a solution to war, a uniting of the world under one government. And this is actively pursued. This is not just a thought. It's an active pursuit. Revelation 13 is one of the key passages that describes a future one world. A world government that is political, headed by a ten-horned beast. Book of Daniel, book of Revelation. It has economic unity. And during that period of time, you will not be able to participate in that economy unless you have the mark of the beast. That's future But things are moving in that direction is the point I'm making. Everything is in place. In fact, the economies of the world are already intertwined. So anything that happens in the world affects all of the markets all over the world. So there's already an economic unity that all it takes is a further uniting and whoever takes control of it controls the world economy. And it has a one-world religion, and in the book of Revelation 13 particularly, it's the worship of the dragon, who is the ultimate counterfeit god. He is Satan himself, Revelation 12.9, the dragon. is interpreted for us. So, a new world order, apostasy on a large scale, the falling away of not only sound doctrine, Churches, biblical ideas, falling away from a scriptural and a biblical worldview. It's full-blown today. It's hard to imagine it going even further than what it is already. 
other than the departure of people in our camp, which is also happening in some cases. So a worldwide apostasy, liberalism is an example that started in the late 1700s, full-blown in the 1800s, a move to unite churches, ecumenism, that's still prevalent, still a goal of a lot of denominations. The secularizing of the church is part of this apostasy. A lot of the liberal churches today have a totally abandoned scripture. They don't use scripture at all. They're totally secular, social gospel that we've referred to earlier. The influence of modernism and now postmodernism has infected uh, so-called believers. Many of them are not even believers at all, I believe. Feminism is a contributor. And by the way, the Bible does more for women than anything man could ever do through any organization or movement like feminism. In fact, feminism enslaves women. New Age, the New Age movement, I haven't heard a lot about it recently, but this was a big thing several years ago. But the ideas are still there. They're still percolating. So this is apostasy that you see today and different forms of it. Terrorism, we don't need to be reminded. I think we were shocked into the realization of radical Islam when the Twin Towers were destroyed. And that already is, let's see, where are we? That's already 16 years ago, almost. And what I did is I traced in this next two slides, actually, the terrorism just in the last year. And let's go through these quickly. January 15, I don't even know where that is. Couldn't remember it, but it popped up. Burkina Faso, 30 were killed. January 14 in Jakarta, Indonesia. In fact, let me give you the statistics on these. In January 16, Deir al-Zaur, Middle Eastern countries, 150 were killed. Actually, 150 were beheaded and 400 were kidnapped. And this is by Islamic radicals. And then in Yemen, 16 were killed and a priest was kidnapped. And amongst the 16 were nuns. They invaded this convent. Brussels, you probably remember that one. Over 30 were killed. Hundreds were injured in the subway station and airport, various places in Brussels. And that's March 22. June 12th, you probably all remember Orlando where 49 were killed in that gay nightclub by a single individual. 28, Istanbul, Turkey, 41 are killed and 200, over 200 injured by three terrorists at the airport. July 1, Bangladesh, 20 were killed by ISIS in a restaurant. Number 9, in Munich, July 22, a shopping mall. Nine were killed, 16 wounded by one individual, radical. July 30th, France, you probably remember the, the man that drove a truck and killed 84 people driving a truck into a crowd. And obviously hundreds were injured in one incident by one radical. September 17th, Manhattan and New Jersey, there were bombs were placed in a variety of places. Uh, I never heard uh, who planted them, but fits the pattern of 
past experience. 29 injured. September 17th, also in the Minnesota Mall. ISIS stabbed nine, or a member of ISIS. November 28th, Ohio State. We're getting closer. Many stabbings. Istanbul, December 10th. 38 are killed, 160 are wounded in a stadium. December 11th in Cairo, 25 are killed, 49 are wounded in a Coptic church. And it was during a church service, 25 killed. So striking home in a Christian community. And this is in 2016, but just Sunday we had a driver drive into a a group of cadets in Jerusalem. Four cadets were killed. I think a couple of them were women, and there were obviously several that were injured. So terrorism is very much present amongst us. And it taught, the Bible speaks of those days, people's love will grow cold. People will just be heartless, brutal. And it's interesting that Even in the book of Revelation, it refers to martyrs that are beheaded, which is common in our culture, the beheading of people as a way of brutally killing them. And there are also other things relating to terrorism. This is an old article, but it's it's an article on the technology today available to people that want to produce either a dirty bomb or an actual nuclear weapon that can be taken into a city in a briefcase. Everything that they need to explode a device can be taken in a briefcase to produce more deaths. High technology, high technology, the Bible speaks of knowledge increased in and like no other time before, it's just we live in a technological information age. Satanism is very prevalent in our culture. In fact, there are covens here in Albuquerque and in every major city of the United States. Satanic covens with which the whole blown satanic experience, witchcraft, etc. These are just indicators. These are not fulfillments of Bible prophecy. These are just indicators that we could be getting increasingly close to the time where actual fulfillments will take place. That period that's called tribulation. So these are not fulfillments of Matthew 24. I don't see them, but they may be things leading up. So we need to be aware of the times in which we live in and be able to uh, rescue people out of the culture. So we just looked at world pressures. There's also an interest today that you can capitalize on. And I think it comes out of that yearning. There is an interest in the future. Everybody has an interest in it, and everyone desires a better culture and things that will promote that. So there's an interest from a lot of areas. There's The academic community has an interest. In the past, universities never offered... I can't remember how they title them. Future studies, I think, is the way one of the, one of these departments are. They have whole departments now, future studies, where they study trends and they study politics and things relating to how things might turn out. A whole whole academic area. And again, this is just out of that yearning, out of that image of God, that a sense of what can we do to, to promote something good in the future. So if you're in an academic 
area, people are probing these areas and thinking about them. And you can say, well, I've got, you know, some things you might be interested in that deals with future things. And if they're open to the truth of them, uh, they might be a way of entering into a discussion and leading to the gospel. So we can use this material. So universities are now offering futures-oriented degrees even. You can get a degree in this whole area. And in some circles, it's real popular as well. Certainly politically, there's always an interest in, you know, what's going to happen. We've been anticipating this election and how's it going to turn out. And we saw two visions of how things may turn out. But people are concerned about, obviously, how they're affected politically. So always politics comes into play and that whole political area is infected with basically eschatology, as I tried to illustrate. Intellectually as well, just not just professionally in terms of the broader professions, but intellectually in terms of uh, thinking people think about these things. Plus, we live in an information age and technology, easy access to information, you used to have to go to a library in the past. Do you guys know what a library is, you younger? <laughs> or do you just Google everything? So, I mean, that's the culture we live in. And that whole area is also infected. The Internet is full of eschatology. And from the very way out weird to some good, even biblical sites that are helpful in this whole area. So... Intellectually, people have a curiosity. The uh, newspapers, I I assume they still carry horoscopes and all that stuff, because people have this yearning, this inward desire to know how things are going to turn out. And again, we seek all the wrong sources and end up with the wrong answers. Socially, the culture in which we live in, and in terms of the culture, I described some of that. Spiritually, there's an interest today And even people that don't go to solid Bible-teaching churches, they have the same yearnings as everyone else. And oftentimes you have to sort through the false doctrine that some of them acquire, but they have that same interest. So there's a spiritual interest in this whole topic as well. Fourthly, there's an emphasis of Scripture. I've already alluded to that. It's not a side issue, and when we talk about foundations, we will certainly see that prophetic passages and a prophetic emphasis permeates all of Scripture. I already told you that the very first statement that is recorded of God's words, of God speaking, includes a prophetic statement, so from start to finish. And obviously the book Bible ends with the book of Revelation, which is predominantly eschatological. So from creation to revelation, the scriptures are packed with prophetic passages. Okay, I mentioned that one-fourth of all of scripture, when it was written, was prophetic. So that's a high percentage. In other words, every... Four verses on an average in Scripture, it has prophetic material in it. But I think it's like 26 point something, 26.8% of the Bible was prophetic when it was written. 
And it would include those passages like Genesis 2, 16 and 17, Genesis 3, 15, and all the others in the book of Genesis, many of which have been at least partially fulfilled. All the prophecies pertaining to the first coming, it would include all of those. So it not only deals with prophecy from the 21st century, but prophetic material permeates all of Scripture, one-fourth of all. 17 of the 39 Old Testament books have a heavy emphasis on eschatology and are predominantly eschatological. These would be the, the minor prophets, the major prophets. 23 out of the 27 New Testament books have significant passages that are eschatological. So we're not just talking about isolated passages. We're not just talking about the book of Revelation in the New Testament. 23 of 27 work out to about 1 out of 25 passages or verses in the New Testament on an average. The writings of Paul, 1 out of 5 passages that Paul writes are prophetic, and most of these, particularly in the New Testament, are prophetic in terms of prophetic with respect to our culture as well. So just the sheer amount of material tells us that this is an emphasis of Scripture that God has put there. This is God's revelation. He has been pleased to tell us ahead of time of things that he's going to accomplish. In fact, there's nothing of significance that God accomplished historically that was not previously revealed as a prophetic event in the future and includes everything pertaining to the nation of Israel, for example. So it's an emphasis of Scripture, emphasis of the Bible, and there's a lot of personal benefit, a lot of personal benefit from studying not only eschatology, but specific eschatological passages. And probably the main application, which we'll talk about, and I'll expand upon that in a moment, or we get that far, maybe... Probably the main application, it gives us a perspective to live all of life. In other words, we have a different perspective from the rest of the world. We have a perspective that satisfies that yearning. It is a blessed hope. And if we have that blessed hope, we can endure anything that God would bring into our experience. But you don't get that unless you have this divine perspective And you don't get a divine perspective unless you understand what God is still going to do in the future. And most of what he's going to do in the future pertains very directly to you and I, and it satisfies that inward yearning. So even though we don't experience it now and we yearn for it, at least we have the assurance and the confidence that God is going to make things right. And he gives a lot of detail concerning how that works itself out. And if we belong to him, it is a blessed hope. It is something that you can't compare. It it is glorious and it's blessed. So there's a lot of personal benefit. So it's not given to us to satisfy our curiosity. Okay, do I know all of the ins and outs, all of the little details, all of the, you know, the ten nations, do I have them all identified, etc.? It's more to really encourage us. And we're going to see when we look at some specific passages, 
Most of the eschatological passages that are yet future were written to persecuted believers. In other words, to give them that divine perspective that they could endure even martyrdom. It was given to an audience. For example, the Olivet Discourse is to prepare the disciples for his crucifixion and the suffering that they would experience during the book of Acts. To know that he is returning to know and to expect extreme hardship and to know that some of them would not even survive. Some of them would have to die. He gives them, three days before his crucifixion, this eschatological perspective. So it's very important, and it has a lot of personal benefit. book of Revelation was written to the church in the time of Domitian when the church was under persecution, and it was an encouragement to them and gave them that divine perspective. So there's a lot of personal benefit. Then finally, there's what I started off with, theological significance, and particularly relating to God himself. We call that whole study theology proper. And what we can learn from eschatological passages in terms of God himself, first of all, we have a purpose for all things, and we we even have a glimpse as to how God's going to work it all out. The final purpose of all things will be to glorify himself. And we see the details leading up to where God is ultimately glorified. And that's a great encouragement. And that's a great perspective. That's the divine perspective. God has a purpose for the age in which we are living in. And it's going to contribute to ultimately bringing glory to himself. The age in which we live in may be that age that is very specifically described that is yet future. So it gives us the purpose for that. And when we talk about the persecution and the the suffering during the tribulation period, obviously the question is, you know, why is this necessary? I mean, why, why, what's going on here? We have a purpose for that, and that is revealed. I think we can discern what, what God is doing during that period of time. Very specific purpose, very important purpose. So in terms of God, it gives us some of the main purposes of God in terms of history. It elevates the sovereignty of God. God is the only one that can reveal ahead of time what he's going to do to man. And as you see it worked out in history, you realize that God is sovereign. In other words, events are not random. Events just don't occur. Events are not just the product of man's decisions. Events do not unfold just because of the accumulation of other events. There is a plan and there is a purpose that God is orchestrating because he is sovereign over every event. I do a lot of creation science talks and seminars and that sort of thing and deal with science, and when I'm talking in that context, I usually mention that God is sovereign over every electron in the universe. There's not an electron in the universe that runs out of its orbit without God permitting it, or even sometimes orchestrating it. So scientifically, God is in charge and orchestrating and sovereign over the entire material realm. So also, in terms of events or in terms of history, there's not a single event, there's not a blinking of your eye that God is not sovereign over. 
He is sovereign over all things. Eschatology, probably more than any other study of Scripture, illustrates the sovereignty of God. In the passages that have been already fulfilled, but also it gives us the assurance, if God is sovereign, he's going to accomplish all those things that are not yet fulfilled. And I have a place in there. And the personal benefit is that it's going to work out to my benefit. He's going to work all things for good. That's future for those that are called according to his purpose. So God is sovereign. God is holy. This is one of the reasons why he has a tribulation. It satisfies some of his legal, just demands that stem from his holiness. Eschatology stresses the holiness of God. And it always has, historically, throughout all of the passages that are even fulfilled. God as a separate and holy person, apart from sin. God's justice, even little children, as I illustrated, have a yearning for justice. They are sensitive to anything that's unfair in their experience. One child getting more than another, for example. There is justice in the universe, and God is going to affect it. We can't expect it in this life. We can't expect it in the church age. But we are assured that ultimate justice will, in fact, be affected and accomplished. But it's got to be done on God's terms and in his timing. And part of the tribulation period is God expressing his not only holiness, but his justice. He's moving in that direction. The wrath of God is emphasized because there's a lot of wrath that's going to be poured out. And that is necessary. It is purposeful. And it is accomplishing part of what God has planned. The omnipotence of God is emphasized by eschatology because it The only way these things could come about is an all-powerful God that is in control of all things that can accomplish a plan that he has set forth by predicting it ahead of time. He's omniscient, so he knows all these things. In other words, we cannot discern them. We need them by revelation, and God has been pleased to reveal something of his mind concerning future things. Grace of God. It's only by grace that we escape the justice of God. None of us wants that justice if we understand it. And none of us, in fact, the the outworking of that justice is that we stand condemned and there's nothing we can do to change that. What we need is grace. And there's lots of grace as well in eschatology. In fact, as far as mankind, all of it is by grace. And we see the love of God. Even though there's wrath, We see the love of God. God deals with those that he has uh, chosen in eternity past and those that he has brought into a saving relationship to himself. There's protection, and some of that protection is an expression of the love of God. Even martyrdom is an expression of the love of God because people, we are removed. We're going to die somehow. It's more glorious to die as a martyr than it is cancer, right? (laughs) Or hardening of the arteries or whatever. Or bicycle accidents or whatever. Alright. And the majesty and glory of God is stressed. Most glorious picture of an event in the future is the second coming of Jesus Christ, where people will see God himself in resurrection form. So the majesty of God is stressed by eschatology. 
Okay, that's theology and how eschatology reveals something of who God is. Let's spend some time talking about the intent. Why are we going to go into so much detail? And hopefully I can remind us as we get bogged down in trying to figure out, you know, sequence of events and some of the detail. There's a lot of detail because God has been pleased to reveal uh, an abundance to us. And in the midst of it, there's a purpose for all of that, not only detail, but even some of the major things. So let's take a look at why does God do this and what is the purpose. And for that, why don't you turn, let's turn to the Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse. And we can pick out just from the Olivet Discourse all of the points that I'm going to make here that illustrate the intent of eschatology and the purpose that God has been pleased to reveal these things to us. Number one, number one, it's intended to warn. Now, this is kind of an obvious purpose. Future things are not always isolate. Well, they're never isolated and individual and separate, but understanding kind of some of these principles helps us to face anything that we can encounter in any period of time at any time. So some of these things that will, in fact, take place in the future are not only to warn in terms of those particular events, but there's some principles that we can draw to be warned in terms of the culture that we live in. We live in an evil culture. First century was an evil culture. The principles are the same. So even though, and I believe, and we'll try to demonstrate, we will not go through the tribulation, and the Olivet Discourse is dealing with that period of time and dealing with the disciples there, we can draw principles from it. And some of the principles are to warn us. For example... Somebody read 24, verse 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even to elect. Okay, behold, I have told you in advance. In other words, I'm giving you eschatology. A specific passage that pertains to specific things during the Great Tribulation, but... Are there false prophets today? Are there false messiahs today? Are there false ideas today? Yes. So understanding the concept that Satan always tries to trip up believers and will always send cults and false religions, false doctrines, false people, is designed to warn. So the disciples were warned in the first century concerning an age that they would not see. Now, they were not aware of that until, obviously, years later, and they died, obviously. But there's a warning there. And a lot of eschatological passages are designed to warn. And even though those are specific warnings about specific things that we may not face, it gives us the principle of realizing that we will face similar things in our experience. Another passage, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2. There was some confusion in the church at Thessalonica. And by the way, these were brand new believers in the church at Thessalonica. And First and Second Thessalonians was written shortly after the founding of the church. It is recorded in, in uh, Acts chapter 17. So he is instructing baby Christians in eschatology. 
And that's one of the main themes of First Thessalonians. And apparently there was some confusion between the time of the writing of First Thessalonians, and then now he's correcting some of the, that confusion in Second Thessalonians. And in chapter 2, he says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you you may not be quickly shaken. That's a warning. Don't be thrown off kilter. That you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed, either by a spirit or a message. See, there's false teaching then. Or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. In other words, don't be shaken. I'm going to give you a perspective here. I'm going to give you some clarification that you got confused from the first letter. But it's a warning of what they faced in the first century. We will face similar things as well. Somebody read Matthew 24, 42. Marcy, uh, go ahead, Marcy. Therefore, be on alert. You do not know which day you're coming. Okay, that's a clear warning. Be on the alert. And again, it's right written to a first century audience. But this is scripture. So there's applications we can draw at any age, and there will be a specific generation that this will be specifically applicable in the future. So warning is a big thing. It's to strengthen us, to give us that perspective to to be able to handle whatever God brings into our experience. There was a specific passage in the Olivet Discourse I wanted to look at, and I brought an old set of my notes. I'm sorry about that. I'm trying to remember where that was. Yeah, in verses 4 through 7, he gives all of these signs that will take place during this horrendous period of time. And notice in verses 8 and 9. Sheila, why don't you read those? 24, 8, and 9. But all these things, then shall they deliver and shall kill you. Not only is that a warning, but it is preparation. In other words, don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard. This is what's going to take place. In other words, prepare yourself. Strengthen yourself. And you strengthen yourself by being aware of the plan and knowing these details, knowing what's going to happen, knowing that this is going to be a traumatic period of time. And you prepare yourself. And a lot of the detail is designed for that purpose. And there were some other passages. I guess I didn't copy them down there. Thirdly, another major purpose is for comfort. It's for comfort. When Paul gives the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians the doctrine of the rapture, they were a little bit, what's the word, uh, distressed. They were upset. They had some confusion about the second coming and issues related and relatives that apparently had died. And he wants them to be informed is what he says in verse 13. And then he, after he gives them kind of the eschatological scriptures on the rapture, how does he conclude? Therefore, what? Comfort one another with these words. That's the end of the passage, or at least the transition into chapter 5, which continues. But it's designed to comfort them. Eschatological teaching is designed to comfort us. In other words, these things not only must take place, but God is orchestrating them, and that's a comfort. We belong to him, 
He works all things for good, for those that are called according to his purposes. We should not be caught off guard. We, we should not be surprised. It is a comfort because God is going to effect ultimate justice and he will effect ultimate salvation, you might even say. And sometimes it's a salvation in a physical way. And I had a passage here as well. It was designed in the Olivet Discourse to Comfort. And I can't remember where it is. I accidentally picked up an old set of notes. Anyway, we'll go on. Designed to motivate. Designed to motivate us. Peter in 1 Peter 4, 7, he says, The end of all things is at hand, writing in the first century. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. So he's motivating prayer and he's motivating a right attitude and actions that will stem from that right attitude. In Second Peter, Peter says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, speaking of the cataclysms and basically the end of the age, what sort of people ought you be in holy conduct and godliness? So it should motivate us to holy living. Second Peter what? Second Peter 3.11 is that specific passage, but the whole surrounding, even beginning in verse 1, actually, and specifically verse 10 and 11, and the one that I read was verse 11. In the Alvet Discourse... Christ uses only three verses to describe the second coming, but he uses 46 verses in Matthew, plus five additional ones in Mark when he applies the Olivet Discourse. And that application is designed to motivate the disciples, to comfort the disciples, to strengthen the disciples. So it's applicational. It's not just informational, the Olivet Discourse talks about an urgency, to have an urgency and a sense of priorities when he talks about the fig tree. In other words, don't get entangled with worldly thinking, with the world itself, but have a sense of urgency. He uses the man on a journey, another parable in the Olivet Discourse, to encourage faithful living, to motivate faithfulness. He uses the thief coming in the night as another illustration to motivate preparedness so that you're not caught off guard when difficult times come. He uses the parable relating to the slave who is in charge of a household to motivate service. We should be actively serving the Lord, not be preoccupied with eschatology, but to use it to serve him. So the intent is not to satisfy our curiosity, but to motivate it's designed to stimulate us to faithfulness in ministry, and that's that parable. In fact, it would be good to read it. Eric, do you want to do 24-45? Read a couple of verses in there. Who then is the faithful and sensible whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the slave whom his master finds so doing. When he comes... In other words, this information should motivate us to serve him and be faithful in service so that when he comes, we would be called blessed. Blessed is that slave. And the rest of the verses kind of expand on that. Uh, Verse 47, truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. 
in the analogy here, the, the master is gone, and now he's going to give him further responsibilities when he returns. There's an analogy there. We also have detail concerning future participation in the millennial com- coming after the Messiah arrives. Our faithfulness now is going to determine the position we will occupy and the service that we will be privileged to, to have in the millennial kingdom. So it touches every aspect of how we live now. So it is to stimulate us to uh, service and faithful walk. And another reason is just to glorify God himself. We've talked about that aspect. And these aren't all. These are just some of the major things that kind of stand out in the passages. And in Matthew chapter 24... We probably shouldn't skip over verses 29 and 30. You want to do those? And 31. Do 29 through 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Great glory. In other words, everyone is going to get a glimpse of that. And we can have a little bit of a sense of it just by reading. Go ahead and close it out. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other gathers them together in order to bring about the final stage of this grand plan, a glorious plan that satisfies that yearning that we talked about at the very beginning. So it brings God glory, and he's the only one that can satisfy what all men are seeking and yearning for. So it's going to glorify God. So that's the intent of eschatology, to warn, to strengthen, to comfort, to motivate, to stimulate, to service, and to ultimately glorify God. There's others as well. We won't have time to complete this, but uh, let's at least get a start on interpreting prophetic materials, and we'll pick up wherever we leave off next week. So let's look at the interpretation of prophecy. And there's a lot that we could talk about, but let's primarily focus on some of the major principles. And actually, there's one major principle that we need to to stress here. And the first principle is we need to take a literal approach. Okay, that is all we need to do. Mark, why don't you close for us today? Heavenly Father, we thank you for... Uh, the opportunity to hear your revelation is the only truth that we have, that we have which stand to you. So we thank you for this opportunity to put those things in perspective. And we can only do this by means of your Spirit who uh, teaches those things to us and empowers us. So the class and, uh, and the greatest effort, these things that are glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.